Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have said, I am the light of the world. We look for the light that the darkness cannot overcome. We look for your light in the eyes of all living creatures and in our own souls. Our souls wait for you now, God, and in your word we hope. Amen. The scripture lesson today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This is the word of God for the people of God. Have you ever received a gift that upon discovering what it was, you could only think to yourself, well, it's the thought that counts? (laughs) A number of years ago now, I was packing up my life to move from Kansas City to New York City, and a friend stopped by my house to say goodbye. He told me he had mailed a gift to New York so I wouldn't have to transport it. That's so kind, I said. And then over the next weeks, in the midst of all of the chaos of moving, I forgot about it entirely. When I arrived at my apartment after a long cross-country drive, there was a box waiting for me. I opened it and discovered a dozen, twelve, umbrellas. Each of them with a tag affixed that said, guaranteed to last through the winds and storms of life in the city. I texted my friend and I said, Len, thank you for the umbrella. I don't know if you meant to send one or one dozen, but I have umbrellas for the rest of my life now. Thank you. He texted back, that box will last you a year, tops. Umbrellas do not survive in New York. When the wind gets going, it whips between the blocks and the buildings, and every umbrella in sight is inside out. Well, thank you, I wrote back, 
And I reminded myself that Len used to be in musical theater and thus had a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> when I packed up my life to move from New York City here to Columbia, I packed exactly two umbrellas. The rest had gone the way of the wind, just as Len told me they would. For something we never see directly, wind can be astonishingly strong. Aside from umbrellas, I once watched the wind blow an older woman and her walker clear into the middle of the street. Several of us were trying to get to her without falling on top of her. Later that same afternoon, when the doorman to my building grabbed my arm tightly and he said he was going to walk me to the corner and put me in the taxi, I just let him do it. And the cover of your worship bulletin today, it's one of many images that are part of Earth as Art, a collaboration between the U.S. Geological Society and NASA. Several more of those images are printed and hanging in our atrium. They are beautiful. Matt McCall, just yesterday on his way to London with some of the choir, sent me a video from Washington Dulles Airport. Look, he said, you might recognize these. For what is probably the only time in our history, our art in the atrium matches that of Dulles Airport. They, too, have Earth as art on display. The prints are all satellite images, and every single one of them highlights the Earth's beauty and creation's power. The image right in front of you is part of the Dasht Ilut, a large salt desert in southeastern Iran. The diagonal lines you see are kaluts. They are enormous rocky foundations shaped by wind erosion. And they vary in size, but some of them are as long as 62 miles each. Underestimating the strength and the capacity of the wind is a dangerous thing to do. Both my experience in New York and the dramatic rocks in Iran help frame our Pentecost story this morning. When we hear the story of the Spirit arriving not just as wind, but as violent wind. Now we don't often think of the Spirit as particularly violent, at least I don't. But there it is. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Willie James Jenning, a biblical scholar and theologian, he says that this moment is the very epicenter of a revolution. He says, in this story, we so often focus on all of the people and all of the different languages, and there is good reason for that. It is no small miracle that that many languages are spoken, and it is no small miracle that so many are heard and understood. That, he says, really is something that even when people are speaking differently, people still understand one another. 
But, he says, don't miss this. How powerful, for the spirit, how powerful does the spirit need to be for that to actually happen? If you think about it, and not just in terms of Parthians and Medes maybe, but in terms of climate change advocates and climate change deniers, for just one example, even if we're all speaking the same dialect, so often we speak right past one another. It happens all the time, in all sorts of ways. But the violent wind, Jennings says, is the beginning of a community that is being broken open by the untamed grace of God. And not only is it absolutely powerful, it is absolutely uncontrollable. No structure, he says, is stronger than the wind, and there is nothing it cannot touch. We've mentioned that it's Pentecost, but today is also World Environment Day. It is an annual international event that has taken place on June 5th since 1973. One of the outcomes of the 1972 United Nations Conference on the Environment, which was considered to be one of the first international conversations about the increasingly urgent climate crisis. Anecdotally, that means that what I guessed at last week is true. We have indeed been debating climate change for longer than I have been alive. Now, those who sponsor World Environment Day remain committed to the cause, even though there are those on both extremes of the divide who advocate for throwing in the towel. Those who say there is no climate crisis, well, of course, there's nothing to address. But then there are those who say the crisis is so severe, there is actually nothing we can do at this point that will make a bit of difference. Thankfully, there are many who walk a more hopeful middle ground. Jonathan Merritt is one of them. In his book, Green Like God, he writes, as people of faith, we take environmental action not because we are guaranteed success, but because we know that success is only reached through pressing on believing that nothing is ever beyond the reach of God. We will only ever be beyond help, he writes, if we stop using our God-given means to accomplish our God-given task of stewarding this earth. Hope is never lost, he says, unless we allow our discouragement to become defeatism. And I think this is where the confluence of Pentecost and World Environment Day is helpful and hopeful and even holy. Because Pentecost itself is a holy moment, a hopeful moment. When the people hear all of these languages and they find themselves understanding, their response is understandably, what does this mean? And this question, Willie James Jennings says, 
When they ask this question, they are stretching themselves toward the future. Every time we seek to understand something or someone better, we are committing ourselves to the future still ahead. We are saying there is still more to come. I remember very distinctly one of the questions I was asked during the last oral exam that was standing between me and ordination. Now these exams are nerve-wracking is the kindest way I can put it. And in this last one, depending on how friendly or not friendly your presbytery may be, you complete three or four years of study, multiple internships, five written qualifying exams, endless interviews, psychological evaluations, and a multi-year process outside of the actual obtaining of a degree. And then you stand in front of up to a few hundred people and anyone in the room can ask you any question they want about anything they want. And this can go on for as long as they want. A friend of mine was once examined so long they adjourned for the evening and came back the next day. Now technically, they could have asked me about my theological understanding of the square root of 913. And I wish they had, because I might have done better with that question. One of the last questions they asked me is, what is the earliest occurrence of the Holy Spirit in Scripture? Now you might be thinking, well, that is a softball of a question. And it was, except it was the ninth question asked of me, and by that point you aren't actually expecting softballs, you're ducking from curveballs, and everything I ever knew about Scripture had left my head. And I remember thinking, well, you've got to say something, say anything. And what came out of my mouth was, with my mouth was, with you I am well pleased which caused those present to laugh since they knew in that moment I was not well pleased with anybody. <laughs> but the one who had asked the question said, oh, Jesus' baptism, kindly saving me from myself and pointing out that is what God says when the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. What I had in mind, though, he said, was more along the lines of, you know, Genesis 1-1. Well, that's a very good answer, I told him. I suggest you get full credit for it. Mercifully, they ended my exam after that, and despite themselves, voted to pass me. I will never forget that moment, but I am glad for it, because we all need to remember that the Spirit has been present since Genesis 1-1, since before the very beginning, because the Spirit's longevity assures us that is it too late is the wrong question. It is never too late. Because you see, God never asks us to weigh the pros and the cons, 
the likely against the unlikely, the odds for and against. God simply says, do whatever it is you can do that will help life flourish. Because a climate crisis is real, just like fear is real and grief is real and pain and sorrow and suffering are real. All of those things are real. But we declare they are not as real as resurrection. By definition, we are a people for whom there is still more of the story to come. Within our suffering, there is always more. When we think our lives are hopeless, there is always more. When things don't go the way we've planned, there is always more. When we feel powerless or the ways of the world overwhelm us, there is always more. Because after the humiliation and the suffering of the cross, there was more. And after Jesus was laid in the tomb, there was more. After he ascended to heaven, there was more. And after Pentecost broke loose like a violent wind, there was more. The story of more is still being told. Now, if you keep reading in Acts, you will encounter imprisonment and earthquakes, shipwrecks and persecutions, which is to say the earliest Christians, they learned quickly that they could not judge their lives and their relationship with God according to how things looked in the moment. Because from the time that the Spirit hovered over the chaos of creation, there has always been more. That more is as close to us right now as our next breath. The spirit, it is as wild and terrible and violent as a tantrum because sometimes we need it to be that demonstrative to get our attention. But it is also as close and as gentle as the life that is settled in your lungs right now. Hope is literally breathing within your body now, which means our work is not in vain. Our lives are not in vain. This hour is not in vain. This earth is not in vain. Nothing is ever in vain. There is always more to our story. The poet Mary Oliver, she says it this way. She writes, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around her with enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. 
I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and still too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.